Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. This is Stephen Luna, the lead pastor. I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening, and I hope you find that this inspires you in your relationship with Christ. Now here's this week's sermon. Oh man, there's so many teasers in that one video, you guys don't even know. Oh man, I'm so excited. This rebrand is going to be incredible. Like I, I've been talking to the, uh, to the creative team, and, and this video, uh, there's, there's a phrase that we use on the creative team. If, if you know someone who's creative, who is good with graphic design, who can do video, like we, we'd love to have you on that team, but there is a phrase that we say whenever we make something that is good, we just call it buttery goodness. So that, that video is buttery goodness. I'm excited about the rebrand. And God, God has been doing a lot. He's, he's been doing a lot in my heart personally. He's, he's been transforming me. And like, here's something that we know, that when, whenever the Lord does a new thing, he first does it uh, in the leadership. He, he first does it, if, if God is gonna do a new thing in, in the home, he's gonna speak to the parents first, and he's gonna transform you, and that's gonna trickle down into the rest of the family. And God has been just doing some great stuff in me and in the elders and in the leadership of the church. And uh, man, I, I know that he is transforming Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 19, it says this. The Lord says this, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Now, in the context of Isaiah 43, we know that the Lord was speaking to uh, the, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, rather, that was currently in bondage in Babylon. Uh, and the Lord is saying, listen, I, I know that it was your sin that brought you into bondage, that, that brought you un- under uh, the tyranny of Babylon, but I want you to understand something. I will not leave you to the Babylonians. I will deliver you. And in this process of deliverance, the Lord is saying this, so now... It's time to forget the past. It's, it's time to forget the, the old things. It, it's, it's time to, to forgive yourself. If I've forgiven you, why do you continue to bring up the past? It's time to move forward. Don't dwell on the things on the past. And then the Lord says this, the next verse, he says this, see, I am doing a new thing. The Lord wants us to see what he's doing before it's ever done. He says this, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? He says, I am making a way in the wilderness, in streams, in the wasteland. The Lord loves to transform. Did you know that? The, the Lord loves to create new things. He, he loves taking, uh, making order out of what you call chaos. He loves making beautiful design out of what you consider destruction. The Lord loves to make uh, beauty out of the ashes. God is, is a restorer. He's a redeemer. And I don't care what it is in your life that you feel is holding you back. The Lord would say to you, submit to me and I will redesign this. I will rebrand this. I will recreate this. I will transform this. We see that the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. He says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It's time for us to let go of the things of the past and say, Lord, we are trusting you. Now, I'm not saying that the things that God has done in our church were as sinful as Babylon. I'm not, I'm not even going close to that. God has done some powerful things in this church in the past, beautiful things. Some of you have been here for, for, a, for over a generation, and you have seen God do beautiful things. Listen, we honor those things. We love where God has taken us, but we are fully convinced of this, that as long as we are following Jesus, the glory years are never behind 
behind us. They are always ahead. We won't be people that live in nostalgia that say, oh man, those were back, day, back then, those were the good old days. No, the good old days are always in front of us. We are never going to be people who get hung up on the things the Lord did in the past and say, we'll never see that, that glory again. No, God is saying, if you keep your eyes on me and you keep staying faithful, I will do a new thing. Don't you see it? Don't you perceive it? In fact, Jesus even said this, anybody who puts their hand to the plow, everybody say plow. It's an agricultural tool meant to till the ground, to prepare the ground for the harvest, to prepare the, the ground for sowing seed, to, to prepare a, a big old feast, right? Like, like so, so literally, anybody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? He is saying this specifically, that if you are someone who is trying to see the advancement of the mission of Jesus, and all you do is live in nostalgia, you are going to miss out on the new thing God is doing. Now, we honor the things that God did in the past. I've, I've told you earlier, I've been looking through some of the old pictures, and any chance we can get to honor former leadership and, and the things that God did, we, we will continue to honor that. But we are not going to be a church that gets caught up in nostalgia. We are moving forward. Jesus is doing a new thing, and we trust him. And we say that with humility. We say that with honor. We say that with respect. But we also say that with anticipation that, the, that God is still going to do new things among us. There is coming a day. I pray I can be like, like, like Pastor McCormick back there. If you want to just give us a, a wave. He, he was a pastor of this church. At one time, he, I mean, you guys have heard the story. He was the one who, who uh, led the church to purchasing this land. I pray that there comes a day, Pastor, where I can be like you and I can sit in this congregation and support what the Lord is doing. Uh, not as a lead pastor, but as someone who's in the congregation, still loving the congregation. But, but I pray that there comes a day where I get to sit back and, and say, let's keep moving, let's keep going. God is doing a new thing. And when God does a new thing, he transforms people. He doesn't just do a new thing in a, in a, in a certain uh, situation. He also transfor transforms people. Whenever God did a new thing in the, old, in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it was often met with a transformed identity. We see that, uh, just for an example, we see that when Abram, when he accepted the covenant where God said, hey, out of you, I'm gonna make uh, many nations. You will be the father of many nations. The Lord shifted his identity from Abram to Abraham. We see Sarai, when the Lord promised to her that she would have a child, even in her old age, the Lord said, you are going from Sarai to Sarah. I am doing a new thing. The Lord told Jacob, after he wrestled with God and won, the Lord, he, see, he looked to the Lord and said, God, bless me. And he said this, I'm transforming you. I'm doing a new thing. You are going from Jacob. You are now going to be called Israel. When Saul understood that he was now called to reach the Gentiles, he embraced a new identity of Paul. Saul became Paul, and we are saying the same thing. When God is moving and changing the trajectory of our church, it is understandable that he will give us a new identity, a new name. We are going through a rebrand. The Lord is doing a new thing. We are, go, we are now MWC, but there is coming a day very soon where the Lord is going to shift our identity and say, this is who you are. We see in our scriptures today uh, another transition, another transformation, another rebrand, if you will. There is a man by the name of Simon. Everybody say Simon. Simon was a fisherman. He was one of the first disciples of Jesus. And Simon after a confession of faith, the Lord transformed him. In the middle of the transformation, he marked it by a new name. Simon became Peter. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read this story. It's in Matthew chapter 16. Let's go ahead and, and read this story together. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered him. After a long pause and hesitation, he said this, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't find this on a, on a Reddit forum or, or this wasn't revealed to you when someone commented on an Instagram post. This was literally revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's pray real quick. Father, I pray that as we unpack this passage this morning, as we prepare our hearts for what you are speaking, I pray, Lord, that you would be so clear to us, that we would be encouraged, that we would be riveted by what your Holy Spirit is doing. We pray, Lord, that you'd also give the chiefs victory. In your name we pray, amen. When the Bible gives a setting, it's not meant for us to read right past. There's one thing I know, that whenever we see the Lord, or whenever we see the Bible give the name of a city, it would serve us best to understand why he's naming that city. The first thing I want us to see out of this text, because we're going to just unpack these, these couple of verses together, is the first thing that we see is that there is significance in a setting. There is significance in a setting. One good thing that would be a good, a good practice for you to, to continue doing when you read the Bible on your own time is to ask yourself, why is this city named? Or, or what, what is the significance of this setting? Well, we see that the significance of this setting, the Lord is saying they were on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a very important city in the region of Galilee. In fact, the Sea of Galilee, the body where Jesus, the body of water where Jesus first called Simon and Andrew, or Simon who became Peter and Andrew and, and, and James and John, they were fishermen and they always, they grew up and they lived in the region of Galilee. They, they grew up near the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in front of the Sea of Galilee, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, was a mountain called Mount Hermon. At the foot of that mountain was a city known as Caesarea Philippi. I actually got a picture I want to show you of, of, this, of this region there. Do we have that? I don't have a picture. I lied. I didn't lie. I just forgot to email it. But anyway, so, so there, just imagine, close your, close your eyes and your mind's eye, picture this. There is a, a sea 25 miles north on a clear day. You can see this beautiful mountain range, snow-capped uh, mountains. At the foot of that mountain was the city, Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi wasn't always called Caesarea Philippi. In fact, that became the name of this city around 4 BC when uh, Caesar Augustus had passed. The region there was broken up into four parts, and King Philip took over the region, and he thought, a way that I could honor Caesar Augustus is to rename this city Caesarea, or Caesar, and his name is Philip, Philippi. So literally, they combined, he combined both names, and that became the city known as Caesarea Philippi. 
Any person reading this in the first century would have understood that that city wasn't always called Caesarea Philippi. In fact, the name of that city used to be, and actually now is now known as, Banias or Banias or Panias or Panias. And in fact, the name of that city comes, it, 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 it gets the name from the Greek god Pan, P-A-N. Not a frying pan, that'd be a weird god, but I'm sure somebody worshiped the pan at some point, because we're, we're weird, we're humans. But the Greek god Pan was this, and you've probably seen him before, he's, he's got the, the legs of a goat, the, the lower body of a goat, and he's got the upper body of a human, he's got really curly hair, and he plays the pan flute. In fact, in, uh, most characteristics, especially during the Middle Ages, they depicted the devil as Pan. He, he's known as the god of fear. In fact, we get the word panic from the Greek god, or the Greek word Pan, and uh, it was a, he was a frightening figure. He was the, the, the god of the hunt, the god of fertility. So they committed a lot of horrible actions, horrible sins. And even if you go back in Israel's history, the evil kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, some of the evilest kings used to worship the god of Baal, the god of also Pan, and they would worship at this city, Caesarea Philippi, or, or Baneas, or Paneas. They would worship there. So, so any good Jewish little boy and girl who grew up in the, sea, the region of Galilee, who grew up around the Sea of Galilee, oftentimes when they'd go to draw water, their parents would say, hey, you see that mountain, Mount Hermon? We don't go there. Because that is where our, our, our relatives fell when they started worshiping false gods. In fact, there was a cave in this city that was almost bottomless. I mean, you really can't see the bottom of this cave. That is where they would sacrifice to the god of Pan. So any good Jewish little boy and little girl would be sure to avoid that place. And here we see Jesus marching his disciples from the region of, of Galilee north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. And I could just imagine that some of them were like, hey, Jesus, um, excuse me, Messiah, sir, uh, we, we, we don't go there. Like, like, we're not allowed to go there, right? And, and Jesus is just like, just not listening to them. He's marching them, marching them to this city. Uh, in fact, in that cave that I told you about, they actually gave it the nickname the gates of hell, the gates of hell. It was bottomless. I mean, they, they couldn't see the bottom, so they thought that's where the demonic was. That's where they worshiped these pagan gods and these, these little boys in, uh, that are following Jesus. They're like, hey, let's not, let's not go that place. And then, you know, obviously there's always that one friend because maybe this is how you grew up where there was always that one friend that was always pushing the envelope and getting everybody else in trouble. That was Peter. He's like, yeah, let's go, guys. It's gonna be fun. We're with Jesus, right? So, so they get to this region. They get to this region, and I'm sure they're afraid terrified, terrified. They get there, and it's literally here where Jesus begins to ask them a very important question. He asks them two questions, and the first one is this. Who do other people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now, you may have read this, and the first inclination that comes to your mind is, man, Jesus, that's a little insecure of you, right? Like, like I just wanna be super clear. Jesus is not asking like, like how some of you would ask like, how many likes did my post get on Facebook? Or, or, or uh, did I get enough followers? Do I have enough followers on Instagram? Like, like Jesus isn't, he's like, all right, now that we're out of Galilee and we're finally in this city of Caesarea Philippi where no other Jews are, let me ask you this question. What, what is everybody saying about me? Like he, he's, he's not asking like, do I have a lot of subscribers on YouTube? Like do people like my, my YouTube? Like, are, 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 they, are they enjoying my content? Like Jesus is not being insecure in this moment when he's asking, what do other people say about me? Can I just be super clear? Jesus does not need the approval of man. 
In fact, nobody needs the approval of man once you realize you have the approval of your Father, when you have the approval of God. And Jesus had the approval of God. Remember when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water and there was a voice, the voice of God boomed from heaven and said, yo, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Like, literally, he was, he was like, like, God was just like, that's, that's my boy. You remember Tom and Jerry? Remember the dog? He'd always be like, that's my boy. Like, God, God literally did that about Jesus. So, so Jesus didn't need the approval of, of man. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't clamoring, just saying, oh, I, I hope they like me. I hope they accept my message. He, he was not insecure. This question was not a question of insecurity. This question was a question of indication. He wanted to see if his disciples were invested in him. What do I mean by that? I mean this, when you love someone, when you truly love someone, you care about the perceptions other people have of them. And and Jesus was trying to test his disciples to see if they cared about what other people thought about Jesus. Jesus didn't need their approval, but he wanted to make sure that his disciples understood, hey, I I love Jesus, and I want to make sure that everybody who comes in an encounter with him knows that he is someone who is deserving of our love. When you love someone, you concern yourself with what other people say about them. I love my wife. And if anyone ever said, you know, my wife was this or my wife was that or she was, it brought up a, a, a horrible, nasty rumor, you better believe I'm going to clarify that rumor because I love her. I don't want anybody to say something ill about my wife that is untrue. The same is true of, of you with people that you love. You will come to their defense. You will come to their aid. And Jesus was trying to see if the disciples loved him enough to know the perceptions that the people around them had. I love my wife, but you know who I kind of like? I mean, I, I mean, I love them in Christ, and I want them to know Jesus. My mechanic. Um, my mechanic is a cool guy. I like him. I, uh, he, he fixes my car. Our, our relationship is nowhere near the, the relationship I have with my wife, obviously, because that would be super weird. But, but my mechanic is a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, he doesn't speak a, a word of English, and I just grew up, where I grew up, like if my mechanic didn't speak English, I knew my car was in good hands. Not to say that anybody who speaks English can't work on my car. You can definitely work on my car. But I just grew up like where there was no mechanics that spoke English. So, so, so I, I know like if, if, he, if he has broken English, he's going to be a good mechanic. I like my mechanic. He's a really good guy. Our relationship is very transactional, however. Uh, I give him money and he fixes my car. Uh, we, we talk about the day, maybe a little bit more, but, but by and large, if you didn't like my mechanic, I, I really wouldn't care too much uh, because our relationship is not a loving relationship. It's a transactional relationship. And I believe some of you have a transactional relationship with Jesus where, where your concern is what can I get out of this relationship? And you don't care about the perception other people have about Jesus. You're just concerned about what can you get out of your relationship with Jesus. And morning, this morning, the same way Jesus asked his disciple, what do others say about me? I believe the Lord is asking us the same question. Do you love Jesus enough to concern yourself with what the perceptions of other people uh, is about Christ? Or is your relationship with him just transactional where it's like, as long as I'm getting my good, I don't care about what other people say about him. The Lord wants us to be concerned out of love. He wants us to be concerned with the perceptions other people have about him. That's the first question he asked. What do other people say that I am? Who, who, do, who do they say that I am? And they began answering the question. The disciples, like popcorn, started speaking up. Some say you're John the Baptist, right? Uh, John the Baptist reincarnate. At this time, John the Baptist had already been killed by Herod, and now John the Baptist uh, was, was dead, and they're saying, well, maybe this is, Jesus is actually John the Baptist reincarnated. Some people are saying you're Jeremiah, the the, the 
the weeping prophet of old who would call out the nation of Israel. Some people think you're even Elijah, the one who prophesied to the evil King Ahab. Some people think you're one of the prophets. So they're giving Jesus some great compliments. They love Jesus enough to say, yeah, Jesus, we, we know what people say about you. Uh, they're saying this, 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 and that. They're giving good complimentary titles and roles and names and identifications. But all of those fell short. And I believe our society does that today. If you'd ask someone, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Some people say, well, if he existed, uh, I, I believe he was a good moral teacher. I believe he was a, an incredible philosopher. Uh, some would say, I believe he, maybe some would even say, I, I believe he, he worked miracles. But when they fall short and don't get to the, the conclusion that he was Messiah, they've missed out. They've missed out. You see, because Jesus didn't leave, leave that interpretation up to us. We can't just say he was a good moral teacher or a good philosopher. He never defined himself as that. How did he define himself? He said, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you can either take him for a crazy man, as C.S. Lewis would say, a lunatic, or you can submit and understand that he is who he said he is. He's Messiah. He is Lord. So he then shifts the question from what do other people say about me? Then he looks directly at the disciples, much like I believe he's doing this morning. And he looks at us, he looks at the disciples and say, but who do you say that I am? What is it in, in, in your heart? Who am I to you? And I can just imagine all of them fall silent. You see, because at this point, they've been following Jesus for two years. And many of them started off in their relationship with Jesus as a very transactional relationship that, that they were receiving from the fame of Jesus some followers of themselves, like because they were hanging out with Christ, there was some, some a residual effect where, where they were getting to eat of the blessing and they were able to experience the miracles and they were able, like just, just by hanging out with Jesus. And I believe here was a point where they were face to face with they ha- this decision they had to make, who is Jesus to me? And all of them fall silent. And yet Peter then speaks up as the spokesman for them all and he says this, you are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. He literally speaks out this answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you know what's important about this is the fact that what comes to our mind, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Jesus was literally asking the question, what comes to your mind when you think about me? And Peter gives this beautiful response. You are the Messiah. What is the word Messiah? Savior. You're the one who was prophesied to deliver the world. You are the one who, who, who would come and, and, and literally all of, all of history hinges on whether or not you are the Messiah. And, and, and Peter is looking Jesus right in the eye and he's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one who is going to deliver the world. You are the one who's gonna draw all people onto yourself. You are the one that history hinges upon. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And friend, my prayer this morning is that every single one of us would walk into this room, say the exact same thing and walk out and display that to the world around us, that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who came to save, to to restore, to to bring all people into relationship and fellowship with the Father. But you need to make that confession for yourself. You see, some of you are living off of the confession 
of the parents and grandparents before you. Or you may be saying to yourself, I, I'm a Christian, but that's because my, my parents at a young age, they took me to church or they, 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 they took me to Sunday school. And I made, I guess, I, I guess I'm a Christian too. In fact, I can't even remember a time before I wasn't a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Can I just tell you this? You cannot get saved on the confession of faith of the person who came before you. You must make that decision yourself to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You need to make that decision. Students, and uh, I mean, obviously you guys are the ones who, hopefully your parents are bringing you to church and and many of them are but the reality is you have to make this decision for yourself to say Jesus you are my savior but more important than what you say about Jesus in here is what you say about Jesus outside of here more important than what you say about Jesus on a Sunday at 1030 or 1130 or 12 is what you say about Jesus at 5 o'clock on Sunday night or 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Jesus was concerned with what they said about him. Simon gives that beautiful answer. But what we see here is that from that confession of faith, from that transformative response, Jesus transforms Simon. And you know what is awesome? Is when you make that same confession, God will transform you. He changes his name from Simon, which ironically means God has heard. And Jesus said, you didn't hear this from anyone else but God. So it's like Simon, the man whose name literally means God has heard, you have heard God, and now you are called Peter, which is another word for rock, Petros, Kephas in the Greek, literally saying you are that rock. Uh, by, by, By your confession of faith, by your statement of faith, I will build my church upon that foundation of faith, by that confession. And he says this, literally marching them to the gates of hell. And many Bible commentators say that when Jesus said this next phrase, he was literally, obviously, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, but he actually marched them to that bottomless cave, a.k.a. the gates of hell. And he marched them straight to that region and said this, and you know what? By that confession of faith, the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not win. You will stay sure and strong-footed. The church will not falter or fail. In fact, if you go back even in recent modern history, you can see time and time again how the church has been persecuted, how the church has been tried to to been defeated. In fact, there have been philosophers. There was a guy specifically by the name of Voltaire who said it is my, he he was a great philosopher when it came to politics, but a horrible philosopher when it came to theology. He said this, my number one objective is to remove from the, from the mouth of men the word of God. And you know what happened? Uh, the first printing press, that, uh, the Gutenberg press, the first Gutenberg press was actually placed in his home. Somebody bought his house and they said, we're going to print the Bible in this guy's house. Like, just, just ironic how God would do that. But literally, there have been time and time again where, where the, the, the church has been persecuted, tried to have been destroyed. And you know what happens? God has made a promise that he will build his church and the, the gates of hell will not prevail. That same confession of faith he made in Caesarea Philippi, it echoes throughout all history. The church will continue to grow. God will advance his mission. And it happens when a church decides to stand up and say we exist for Jesus we exist for him Jesus we know who you are you are the son of God and can I just tell you this before I ever reveal the name of our church can I just tell you this uh, as we walk through this rebrand we are saying we are a church that exists for Jesus 
We are a church that exists for Jesus. If I, if I took a survey and said, why should our church exist? I'm sure we would get incredible feedback. Some of you may be giving me the answer. Uh, our church exists to eradicate foster care and adoption, the need for foster care and adoption in the city of Wichita. That'd be a great reason to exist. Some of you may say, uh, we exist to, to help out uh, the, the social needs and the community around us, to eradicate poverty and to help out the public school system. And that, that's a very, very noble task. Some of you may say, we exist to, to be a house of prayer. Ab- absolutely. Praise the Lord. Let's do that. Some of you may be saying, we exist to, to train people in discipleship. And I'm going to say, th- those are all great things, but unless they come from the foundation that we exist for Jesus, all that stuff is meaningless. We exist for Jesus. That that, that is the first point uh, of of our rebranded series, that we exist for Jesus. The same way the Lord looked at Peter and said, who do you say I am? And he said, you are our Messiah. You're the one we embrace. We are saying as a church, unanimously, we exist for the glory of Jesus. We want him lifted up. We don't want, like, honestly, can I just be honest? A, a sexy new name is not gonna draw people into the church. Maybe it'll bring them once, but what's going to keep them is whether or not there is life-changing, transformative power in this church. And the only way that happens is if we preach Jesus. We love marketing. We love create creativity. We will steward every dime and dollar that comes in here, and we will do Facebook ads and social media and, and put stuff on YouTube. We will do all those things, but none of those things will change anyone's life. We need to exist for Jesus. We need to exist for Jesus. That, that's it. So the number one thing is, is we exist for Jesus. And, and, and what are the marks of a church that exists for Jesus? I want to give those to you really quickly as we close. The first one is this. A church or a people that exists for Jesus follows him to places no one else will go. They marched to Caesarea Philippi, a place where good people didn't go, and yet it was at that place where the greatest confession of Jesus was ever made. Listen, friends, if God is calling us to reach the lost, what I don't want our church to become is a church that attracts other churchgoers from other churches that have less sexy names than Maranatha Worship Center. Like, like that, that's not who we're gonna be. I, I, I want, I obviously, that's who I want. I want people coming to our church, and if they've, you know, if they're in the middle of a transition, great, but we don't want churches that, uh, we don't want people from other congregations to come to our church, and we don't want to experience growth at the demise of another church. That is not what builds the kingdom. What builds the kingdom is a church that is proclaiming the gospel on the rooftops and inviting the lost in. We will be a church that reaches the lost, but here's the thing. If we are going to be a church that reaches no one else, that means we need to do things that no one else does, and we need to go places that no one else is going. And I'll say it again. In order to reach the people no one else reaches, we need to go to the places that no one else goes and do the things no one else does. If God is calling us to reach the lost, we need to say, Lord, we exist for you and we will go anywhere. We will stop short of sin to reach the lost. We will do whatever it takes to reach the lost. We will extend belonging to everyone and anyone. It doesn't matter what they look like, what they believe, what they profess, their sexual orientation. It doesn't matter what theology they adhere to. We are going to reach them and love them and extend belonging to them because we believe that if we extend belonging, that it is your job to change and transform them if they know that they are loved. So that is who we're going to be. We're going to be a church that exists for Jesus and says all people belong here. So we said this, we're a church, a church that exists for Jesus goes places no one else will go. Secondly, a church that exists for Jesus cares 
about what the world says about him, we will begin to concern ourselves with what our neighbors think about Jesus. I mean, imagine how beautiful it would be if you concerned yourself with what your classmates think about Jesus or what your coworkers think about Jesus or, or what your neighbor thought about Jesus and you began to concern yourself out of love, right? Because you, you care about the perceptions people have of the people that you love. So yeah, we, we love you, Jesus. We want people to, to know that you are a good God. In fact, there was somebody in scripture who beautifully articulated that. David, he would constantly say, I will forever sing your praises. Your, your praises will forever be on my lips. By going and coming wherever I am, I will, I will proclaim the glories of my God. Right? We see David, a man who was not perfect, who committed horrible sins, yet still was called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he concerned himself with what people thought about his God. We will do the same. But more important, more important, than being a church that cares about what the world says about Jesus. I wrote this, a church that exists for Jesus cares more about what they say about Jesus to the world. Do you see the difference there? It's one thing to concern yourself with what your neighbor says and thinks about Jesus. It's another thing entirely to say, what am I saying to my neighbor about Jesus? What do my actions and what does my lifestyle say about Jesus? What, what, am I proclaiming that Jesus does change and transform or am I living out a cheap gospel that doesn't speak life, power, and transformation? What is my life speaking to the world around me? And I'm literally here to say that, that we are a church that concerns ourselves with what we are communicating to the world around us. We believe in the transformative power. In fact, Jesus says this, I said it earlier, but in John 13, 35, he says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Jesus gives us the mark, the metric of how the world will know that Jesus is real. This is how the world knows that we are the disciples of Jesus, the love we have for each other. Can, can you let that sink in this morning? Notice that he doesn't say, this is how the world's gonna know you're my disciple by how much of the Bible you know or how quick you are to, to denounce evil and sin on social media. He doesn't say, you're, the world's gonna know you're a disciple by, 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 by the protests and the marches that you attend. Or He doesn't say, the world's gonna know you're my disciple by, by how many times you've attended church services. Those are all good things and they have a place. But he says this, the world will know you're my disciples you love one another that prompting that command was talking about the house how we love each other how concerned we are for each other how willing we're we are to contribute to the aid of someone else in this body and you may be saying pastor i have been coming here for some time and i and i don't feel loved i i, I hate that that exists I hate that sometimes people can fall within the cracks of, of, of daily life, of church life. And if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't matter what church you go to, that, that, that happens. That's a reality. But can, can I just submit to you to change the narrative? And instead of saying nobody loves me, can, can, I, just, can I just prompt you to, to change that, that mindset and say, who, who am I loving? Whose aid can I run to? 
who's in, in need physically that I could show up on, the, on their doorstep and cook them dinner or drop them off a meal? Who in the body of Christ is in need of a hug? Listen, I know that you may be an introvert and you may not like getting around and greeting. That is, not, that is not your MO. Maybe there's someone that needs a hug and they need it from you. They don't want it from someone like me who's, you know, I, I'm just a hugger anyway. I'm gonna hug everybody. But they, they, they need it from someone who, hey, this doesn't come naturally to me. I'm, I'm gonna greet you this morning because I love you and I'm so glad you're at church. One, one dream that I have is that during greeting, nobody's sitting down. And I know some of you are wired and you're just like, yeah, amen, pastor. Listen, I know because that's who you are. You love getting around, Oscar. You, you love me. You love greeting people. But some of you aren't like that. But we're called to love each other. And you know what happens? When we take steps of faith and even do things that are uncomfortable because God is going to call you to do uncomfortable things, he meets you where you are and he rewards you. He rewards you. He honors you. He multiplies your effort. So get around. Let's love each other. Let's be that church. And the last mark is this. The last mark is this. A church that exists for Jesus is a solid rock. Is a Peter. Is a solid rock in an unstable world. Friends, our, our world is unstable. Like, don't, don't be confused. You may be thinking, oh, our GDP, our, our, you know, our, our, our current economy is strong. Yeah, but morally, we've, our, our, church, our, our world is failing, unstable, and needs Jesus. And the church is called to be a solid rock in an unstable world. Now, don't start trying to guess the name of our church. It's not solid rock. But, but can I just say, we, we are called to be that strong, immovable force. That when the gates of hell are surrounding people and shattering lives and shaking livelihoods, we continue to stand firm and say, this church is not failing. We stand on Jesus. We know whom we exist for. We know who we belong to. We are his. And we make that decision to be that church people who are living in unstable terrain will run to this place looking for stability, something to hang on to. They will, they will look for a fortress to hang on to, and we will be that church. In fact, our name is derived from all of those things. We are going to be firmly established in the ways that we love. I wrote here in my notes, how we behave we will forever be a church that extends belonging. That's never going to change. We are going to be a church that is firmly established in how we think. Listen, anybody who, who believes things that are contrary to the word of God are more than welcome to come here, but we are never going to change our, 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 our message. We may change the methods of how you proclaim that message, but we will never change our message. We may change the models that we implement to proclaim that message, but we will never change our message. We will always be a church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a church that always says the only way to be saved is through Jesus. And we will communicate that with love and grace and acceptance, but we will not be so open-minded that our brains are hanging out. No, we are firmly established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed. It is the only way for salvation. Lastly, we are firmly established in what we do. And I want to drop this on your lap as we end this morning. 
the Lord spoke to me. He said this, if you could only do two things, if I was coming back next week and your church could only do, or if my church, the one that I have called you as an under shepherd over, if you could only do two things or a few things in, in the body of Christ to make the most impact in the world around you, what would those be? And I was like, oh, geez, Lord, like way to put me on the spot. Uh, we do a lot of stuff in this church. We got a Sunday school. We got um, uh, we, great community groups. And I started listing them all. And I was like, we got Wednesday night prayer and we've got a youth group and we, we've got kids ministry and we've got all these different things. And I'm just listing off every ministry. But the Lord was like this, if you could only do two things to maximize your effectiveness in the world around you, what would they be? And I said this, weekend services in community groups, right? If, if we were to look at all of the book of Acts and tell ourselves, what did the early church do? They prayed, they lived together in fellowship, they served one another, they gave and they proclaimed the gospel to the world around them. Pray, live, sell, ter, uh, tell, give. Like, like, like they did five things. And, and if, I, if I would look at what we could do I would say our weekend services and community groups. So here's, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're gonna do away with all these other ministries, but I'm saying that the main focus of the church needs to be where we make the biggest impact, where we see the most salvations, where we have these greatest opportunity for us to experience intimacy with God, where we can see discipleship or growth happen. And those two things are our weekend services and community groups. And there is going to be, when we relaunch, there is going to be a standard in this church that if you are a member of this body and you want to grow, you need to be at the weekend services or the weekend experiences and you need to be a part of a community group. Those are the two ways you're going to grow, maximize the growth in your life and in the world around you. So I just want to submit to you that when we rebrand, and I'm going to be preaching about this specifically and teaching about this in weeks to come, we do two things at MWC. We will do two things in the church we will become. Weekend services and community groups. But you know what? The greatest thing we could do tonight, this, this afternoon, is this. Answer that question for ourselves. Specifically, who do you say I am? I believe Jesus is asking that same question in this room. He's concerned with what others say. He's concerned with what the neighbor next to you says and whether or not you love them enough to know that answer. But I believe in this moment the Lord is asking all of us this question. But who do you say I am? In your heart of hearts, who, who do you say Jesus is? Not just what would you say about him on Sunday morning, but, but who do you say he is? And he's not asking you, what does your family think? What does everyone collectively under the household that you reside in think? He's saying you specifically, who do you say I am? And my prayer is that you would say, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Maybe you're walking through your own gates of hell like the disciples when they were asked this at Caesarea Philippi. But 
when you are in your darkest place and you can proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And how powerful is that? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just bow our heads in this moment. And I want the Holy Spirit to speak to you one-on-one. He's asking you this morning, son, daughter, who do you say that I am? College student, youth student, empty nester, no matter what age, no matter what demographic, who do you say that I am? I just want to give a moment for us to respond to that. Maybe you walked in saying, Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And I just pray that you echo that same statement. Lord, help me to confess that and proclaim that more boldly than I ever have in the past would be your prayer. Maybe you, you've always said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the Son of God. But maybe you've lost sight of what other people say about him. And I just pray that we would all concern ourselves with that a little bit more. But maybe you've walked in this morning and you would say, you know what, I, I haven't answered that question. My, I know in theory what I should say, but my lifestyle does not communicate that he is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he is the Son of God. I believe the Lord wants to do a transforming work in your life. The same way Simon became Peter, I believe the Lord wants to transform you and make you a new creation this morning. So if you would say, Pastor, you know what? I want to make that declaration that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. I'm asking for you to be bold and just to lift up your hand right now with every eye closed, every head bowed. Go ahead and just lift up your hand and make that confession this morning. Praise God. Anybody else? Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you so much that you have saved, that you have delivered, that you have restored, that you are continuing to do a mighty work in this place. God, we ask that you would continue to transform us from the inside out, that as we make these confessions, you would meet us where we are and transform. Lord, you are doing a work in in so many lives individually. You're doing a work in us collectively. And Father, as you are transforming who we are, as you are rebranding us, we pray that we would understand from the very beginning that we are a people, we are a church that exists for Jesus. That when we wake up, our main objective is how can I exist for Christ more today than I did the day before? That when we go to bed and we survey the day that we just lived out, we would ask ourselves, did I exist for Jesus? You will give us the power and the strength. And Lord, even when we fall short, we can come to you and you will restore. You will forgive. But we pray that we would exist for you. That's our prayer. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Can you praise the Lord this morning? Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We exist for you, God. Guys, thank you so much for coming. God is good. 
hey, let's go Chiefs. Let's have aggressive, a W today. I want to see a Super Bowl. I want to see that Lombardi Trophy come back to Kansas City. Hey, guys, God bless you. We'll see you next week. Take care. That wraps up today's message, but we've got more on the way, so be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a future podcast. You belong here, so we encourage you to get connected. You can find us on social media or online at mwcwichita.com. That's mwcwichita.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.